My name's Jeff. If we haven't met, I'd love to get to meet you. Uh, we're in a series on Deuteronomy, um, but I'm going to start, and we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments today. Woo-hoo. I'm going to start by telling you about my sister, Catherine. She's six years older than me. Kind of get you, I'm going to get a big picture about my sister to hone in on why I'm telling you about her. But uh, she, a few years ago, kind of started her own consulting business. You can look her up, Catherine Jeffrey. Uh, What she does is, uh, and this is really a fruit of her academic studies and everything, but she goes into companies and she trains them on the differences in the generations, which I think really because of technology and the world that we live in, we just had missionaries stand up here. But when when you're in one generational group and you visit the other one, it's like cross-cultural ministry. Amen? I mean, amen. So, but really what she does is she goes in and she'll talk to companies that this is how boomers are and what they expect and why they're that way. And Gen Xers, yes, even though we're the forgotten generation, we still exist. Gen Xers and what makes us, us. And then millennials and Gen Zers, because there's a ton of differences. So she's done really well, actually, and it's a big deal. It's a worldwide phenomenon. I'm not kidding. My sister is so busy, she can't say yes to every request. And in, in December... I think there was a span of 10 days when she was in six different countries. <laughs> so you think generational stuff is hard. It's hard, it's hard everywhere is the point. Um, so I was just like, I, I've listened. To, I mean, I've talked to her about her job, but I've listened to a podcast she was on. And then I was one of my days off on a Monday. She was doing one. And so I zoomed into her presentation just to see her, partly because it's my sister and I love my sister. And partly because it's, good, it's cool. Like it's, it's interesting stuff. And I'm not going to do the whole presentation, though. I mean, it, it will make you think about, oh, this is my job. Oh, yeah, it's totally, they're totally right. You know, like, but I will tell you, so in the course of her giving examples about differences, um, some of the times she'll talk about, you know, the way, I mean, the, the classical one is the way that millennials and boomers don't understand each other, right? Uh, although, I mean, again, Gen Xers do exist. <laughs> and Gen Zers often see, they're still different than millennials, but they do see things in similar ways. But the classic, well, one, it's not the classic example, but it's the one that stuck with me. She was talking about, like, emails and written communication these days. And she said, you know, Gen Zers and millennials will make fun of boomers, I mean, Gen Xers too, but boomers because they put two spaces after a punctuation mark. Now, that one caught my attention because it's like, what, what am I supposed to do? Like, what you younger folk don't know is that I learned my, I didn't learn how to type on a keyboard really until my freshman year of high school. It was all peck, peck, peck until my freshman year. But I learned on a typewriter. And so you, I guess if I understand this correctly, you had to put two spaces after a punctuation mark on a typewriter because of the typewriter. But now that we have computers, you don't need to do that anymore. So I, I don't know that I love being laughed at when I don't even know, oh, somebody's laughing at me. Or, or I, but I, I want to be taken seriously. So I'm like, Okay, when I, was, when I was younger and learning how to type, the rule was two spaces. But the rule has changed. And because the rule has changed, I'm willing to, I'm willing to change. But, but it's hard. This is my point I want to make. It's hard. I, like I, because I even knew I was going to talk about this in the sermon, when I was writing up my little paragraph for the email on Friday, I was like, okay, I am going to only put one space after every period. And I get to the end and I have to delete like, like six, like every other sentence I do wrong because it's in my subconscious. Or, or let me say it this way as we're, as we're driving to, to the text. 
I followed a rule, and it formed me, and it trained me. And so you can laugh at me all you want for putting two spaces after a period, but my thumb just does it. <laughs> like, I have to, like, stop that thing. Only one stop. Only, you know, it's like, it's just how I've been trained. And if I'm going to, and maybe I'll eventually get there, but if I'm going to only put one space after a period moving forward, I have to retrain myself and exercise obedience to a new rule. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? So, because what I want to do, because we're, we're going to be in Deuteronomy 5 today with the Ten Commandments, and then we'll be in chapter 6 next week, which is kind of like the, the core of the book. And then we're going to be back in the law, and we're going to look at some of these more specific laws that are outflowing from the Ten Commandments as the core. But I want to introduce some core principles about the law, a way of reading the law that are helpful for us, so that as we continue on through this book of Deuteronomy, we understand what's going on uh, and why, and actually why the law is, is a gift, why it's good, and also why it's weak and unable to fully accomplish all that it might have set out to do. So in light of that, I want you to think about the story where we find ourselves, right? Israel had been in slavery, in subjugation to Egypt, to Pharaoh. And they were under Pharaoh's rule and authority, and they were forced to follow Pharaoh's laws, especially as slaves. And so you could say they were made in the image Pharaoh wanted them made in. So what God has done, where we are in the story, is God has freed Israel, amen and hallelujah, and led them through the wilderness and he is giving them a new law to form them into a new kind of people. In my, in my horrible makeshift analogy, God is saying, Israel, you spent your whole life doing two spaces. Let me teach you how to type with one space. You're tracking with me. That's what we're doing. Uh, the Ten Commandments, then, can be read as new rules given to form a new people. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm laboring, belaboring the point because we often come to the law and feel like, well, this is dumb or stupid or I don't understand it or it's a burden. And then we read Paul and Paul says the law was good and we're like, how is the law good? And I want you to see the law was good. It was a gift to the people of God, not to frustrate them, but to help them flourish, to help them be an alternative kind of humanity in the world, a new set of rules to teach them what it means to follow this God. So what I want to do is read through Deuteronomy chapter 5. We'll read the first 22 verses, and we'll kind of, it'll take a little while, 22 verses, but I want to comment on the Ten Commandments uh, just to a, a limited degree. Then I want to pause, and I want to talk about freedom, because uh, sometimes I talk about living in modern-day Babylon, or maybe because we're talking about Pharaoh, we could talk about living in modern-day Egypt, but it's pretty natural for us who have been formed in modern-day Babylon to wonder, how does the law free me when someone else is telling me what to do? That doesn't sound like freedom. So I want to wrestle with that paradox a little bit because the law really does lead us to freedom. <laughs> but we may have to adjust our definition of freedom along the way. And then finally, I do because, because the New Testament does so much with the law. 
And because Jesus takes this law that is a good gift and makes it even, can I do bad grammar, even gooder? <laughs> he makes it even better. He, he adds beauty to the law. And I, want you, I just want you to see the whole arc of this. Because we're going to spend time in the law and I, I want us to understand what's going on. So if you'll turn with me to Deuteronomy, or you can follow along on the slides, or you can stare at your phone, and I will assume you are looking at Deuteronomy and not anything else. Deuteronomy 5, verse 1, Moses called all the people of Israel together and said, listen carefully, hear, O Israel, hear the decrees and regulations I am giving you today so you may learn He's teaching them a new way of being human. You may learn them and obey them. You're going to be a community like the world's never seen. And again, as I've said, obedience is a major theme in the book of Deuteronomy. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Mount Sinai. I want to pause here to say a few things about covenant. Uh, we, we will actually, formed was mentioned. We spend two weeks talking about covenant and formed because it's the backbone for how I understand love in the Bible. <laughs> Uh, it is the framework that God gives us for understanding our relationship with him. So again, the law is not some abstract thing that is just thrown out into humanity. It is meant to function within the context of a loving family. So for example, I have a 13-year-old boy. His name is Jay. Jay and I do a lot of things. We play together. We study together. We vacation together. You know, we eat together. We do a lot of things together. But but also part of our relationship is Jay doing chores from time to time. Not enough, actually, but from time to time. But it's not weird for me to ask Jay to do chores. We've got a healthy, it happens in a healthy family. But if my neighbor moved out and a new family moved in, and I, the first day I met their kids, I gave their kids chores to do, that's weird, right? That's really awkward. So one author was kind of trying to capture it this way. I think it's possible to read the Old Testament law as though God is that parent giving orders to other neighborhood kids. He's overstepping his bounds or he's being too demanding or too negative. But in reality, his instructions aren't random and they don't overreach. They are the house rules for Yahweh's family. They ensure peace between family members. They are not the main thing, but rather the backdrop for the main thing, which is the loving relationship. We don't have families so we can do chores and have rules. We do chores and have rules to facilitate life in a family. So again, I'm working hard to help you see that, that this is important stuff, and we don't want to just run through it. Uh, verses 3 and 4, the Lord did not make the, this covenant with our ancestors, but with all of us who are alive today. At the mountain, the Lord spoke to you face to face from the heart of the fire, which is actually pretty interesting because he's actually, Moses is speaking to the next generation, right? Deuteronomy is just a collection of sermons right on the cusp of entering the promised land. They've been journeying through the wilderness, and Moses is about to die, and this is kind of his last teaching, and we've talked about this. It's just a few hours in the history of Israel, the book of Deuteronomy. That's all it is. But Moses, in a sense, is saying to the next generation, and really every generation that follows, you actually were there at Sinai in the sense that every generation needs to renew that covenant with God. 
which we still really uphold as Christians. There's two things that we really take seriously as a family because Jesus said to. We do baptisms. When, the, when we enter the family of God, we're baptized. That's a normal thing for Christians. And what did we do last week? We did communion. What is communion at its core? It is this. It's a covenant renewal ceremony where we come before our maker and say, I have sinned and I have broken all of my promises to you. Or maybe not all of them, but a whole lot of them. And then God says, I forgive you. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, you're forgiven. Let's keep going at this thing. <laughs> and we say, all right, let's do it. And then we do it again next month because we've broken covenant again. That's covenant renewal. Verse 5, I stood as an intermediary between you and the Lord, for you were afraid of the fire and did not want to approach the mountain. And he spoke to me, and I passed his words on to you. And this is what he said. So now we're at the Ten Commandments. Uh, and they're the Ten Commandments. Uh, we, we first read them in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, and then we, we actually know they're ten because in Exodus chapter 34, Moses said, he, Moses actually calls them the ten words. If you read in scholarship a lot, sometimes they're referred to as the Decalogue. Deca, ten, log words, ten words. Um, so we know there's ten, but what's ironic is uh, there's, there's several different ways that they get numbered. Some, the Jews number it different than some of the Christian denominations, and some Christian denominations number it different than others. So, so we know there's 10 in here somewhere, but we aren't all agreed on what those 10 are. I'll just tell you that. But in general, in general, the first three are, are representative of our vertical relationship with God, and so we'll read through those. And then uh, commandment number four on the Sabbath is kind of a transitionary one, and then five to 10 really is more horizontal in how we respect and honor our neighbor, how we love our neighbor. So we'll begin in verse 6. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. So again, for some people, this is kind of an intro. For some people, this is commandment one. Depends on how you read it. But I, I want to pause here because, uh, because even as I read through scholarship, you know, Christian commentators always want to point out that Deuteronomy really, even though there's a lot of law, it's a book of grace. And so again, sometimes when we, when we are confronted with a lot of law, we get overwhelmed and we have trouble seeing grace. So let me just make this pretty clear to you. And the, and the easiest way to say it, and it's what verse 6 is communicating. God did not go to the Israelites in Egypt when they were crying out under the bondage of slavery and the, the heavy burden of Pharaoh and say, here's my law. If you can find a way to keep my law while you're in Egypt, I'll come and rescue you and save you. That's not how God works. That's not how God works with you and me either. God actually hears the Israelites calling out to him, and he rescues them. And then, and then in his mercy, as he leads them through the wilderness, ah, what you learned under Pharaoh is not going to lead you to life. Pharaoh, Pharaoh promised you life, but he's led you to death, so let me give you my law, and let me lead you to life. And so then we actually, we do the commands of God, not because, it's the difference between a get to and got to, right? We don't got to, we get to, and we do it out of gratitude for what God has already done. And so God, I mean, even if you're new to church, that's what God wants to do for you. You don't have to set, you don't have to get yourself all prettied up. No, you, you cry out to God right where you are in your seat. Cry out in the name of Jesus, forgive me of my sins, <laughs> And Jesus will meet you and he will rescue you. And then he will show you how to live in a way that leads to flourishing in life. How to be a part of 
a healthy community. So that's what's going on. Verse 7, you must not have any other God but me. That's pretty straightforward. Uh, We can amen that. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image or anything of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. This is, you know, dealing with idolatry. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection in any other gods. I'll just pause there before we keep reading. Uh, because, again, some of these words you've got to take time to think about. We might read jealous God, and we might have a negative connotation with jealousy. What, what does that mean? And I think the best example I, I read as I was reading this week is, in, and I will say this because I've seen this firsthand, and even as I say this, I want to say this with care because the example I give may be very personal to some of you because you've walked through this yourself and you know what I'm talking about. But from time to time as a pastor, I've been invited into what I would call both a privilege and a horror. Uh, Invited into situations where parents are trying to save their kids from some nasty drug addiction. Don't do drugs. I don't care how old you are. Don't do them. But I have, and, and I think the best way to describe it is that these parents are jealous for their kids. They know their kids have given their hearts to something that promises life but only leads to death. That's every idol. And so God is jealous for you and I because he he does not want us to end dead. He wants us to end in life. And so he'll do, he'll leave the 99 to come for you and me. He's jealous for us. That's what he's saying. And then I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But catch this, three to four generations. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. So here's the contrast. I I talk about about this more frequently now, but being a mature Christian means holding things in tension. So part of that tension, one of those tensions, is God is a God of justice. And this should sound like good news. He is going to judge evil. <laughs> he is going to judge evil. He will, he's patient, but he will not allow evil to go on forever. He's, he's going to bring justice. But you have to hold that tension with the tension that our God is also a God who is patient, who is merciful, who is loving, Right? And sometimes it's hard, but you got to hold that tension and you trust God and you, and you study the scriptures to see how that plays out. But I do want you to see that as God is revealing himself to us on some of these tensions, they're a little weighted though, right? God is going to bring about judgment for three to four generations, but unfa- unfailing love for a thousand. I mean, I think it's passages like this. If you ever read through the little book of James... I mean, one of the things that James says that I think is striking to think about, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, well, God is a God of justice and judgment, but this is what he's talking about. This is the way the biblical authors reveal the contrast to us as we seek to hold the tension. Verse 11, you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. You bear his image, bear his name well. I mean, it's, that goes way beyond profanity in terms of what's being said there. But take, take your relationship with God seriously. It's not a game and it's not a joke. 
So don't misuse the name of God. Here's the transition. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This is where, I mean, we could talk about, if we were talking about, you know, reforming them on their way out of Egypt and like Pharaoh and all Pharaoh's gods and Pharaoh himself being a god. Now, but you really get into it. The Israelites were were slaves and God is saying, no, everybody gets a day of rest. I mean, there's a sense that you've been formed poorly and I'm I'm, I'm giving you a whole day to rest because you've got to learn this. You don't know this. Uh, No one in your household works. Your sons and daughters, your servants, your oxen and donkeys, other livestock, foreigners living among you, uh, male and female servants must rest as you do. And then he says, remember that you were once slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out with a strong hand and powerful arm. And that is why the Lord your God has commanded you to rest on the Sabbath day. We've talked a lot about the Sabbath, so I'm not going to talk too much about that today. But what I want to point out is if you do go back and read Exodus 20, and when Moses originally is giving the Ten Commandments, and you hold it up next to Deuteronomy chapter 5, it's virtually identical, except for this one. (laughs) In Exodus 20, the example that Moses gives for why we should honor the Sabbath is because God rested on the seventh day of creation. In Deuteronomy, he gives the example of freeing the Israelites from slavery from Egypt. And I'll be honest, that used to mess with me. Like, again, some of you know my undergraduate degree was in chemical engineering. So I'm like, just give it to me straight. Like, don't change things on me. Uh, I know how the reaction works. And then when these chemicals says, what happens? Why is, why is Moses changing this on me? What's the deal? But I've gotten more and more and more comfortable with it. And it's not so much a point here But I want to say it here, so when I say it again, you've heard it at least once. But as we continue to read through the laws in Deuteronomy, what you're going to find is that a lot of them are exactly the same as Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Some of them are adjusted a little bit, kind of like this one's adjusted a little bit. And then some of them are totally changed. And you're like, wait a minute, why are these laws being changed? What's going on? Can Moses do this? Can God do that? Well, yeah, they did. (laughs) But the point is, and it's not like rocket science. But you got to think about it. this law was given to a specific people at a specific time. And the laws given to the people in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers really were for the people to be formed into a certain kind of community while they wandered in the wilderness. What is about to happen? They are about to enter into the promised land and they won't be wandering anymore. So, so the laws are going to get adjusted to make sense for the context in which the people are living. Now, I want to bring that out too as we get into a little bit of New Testament stuff in a few minutes because, because that's also why, I mean, you'll get into why do, why do I follow this law? You know, why do I still follow the Ten Commandments but I don't follow like the seafood one or the, the mixing of fabric? Why, why can I ignore some of the law and not other parts of the law? And in many ways, you've got to follow each one of those through to think about it, but But you and I live in a different context now. And really the logic of the New Testament is because of what Jesus did on the cross. Because God himself has entered into our story and bore our burden and and set us free. (laughs) And because the Holy Spirit, this is really the big one, because the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us. When Paul talks about the law and the way things have changed in light of Christ, it's, 
the, the, the changes are really because you and I, in Christ, have the personal presence of God dwelling within us. And so left to our own devices, this is why the law is good, but it's weak. It can't change us, and your willpower can't change you, but the Spirit of God can change you. And so there's a sense that we are saved by Jesus when we give our life to Him, but we're daily being saved, right? We're daily being saved because we need that kind of transformation for the Holy Spirit to change us so that we can look, be this people that God wants us to be. All right, I'm going to go faster through the last ones, and then we'll, we'll revisit them in the New Testament. Honor your father and mon- mother as the, as the Lord your God commanded you. Then you will live a long, full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your ma- neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's wife. You must not covet your neighbor's house or land, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. The Lord spoke these words to all of you assembled there at the foot of the mountain. He spoke with a loud voice from the heart of the fire, surrounded by clouds and deep darkness. This was all he said at that time, and he wrote his words on two stone tablets, and he gave them to me. There you go, the Ten Commandments. You got through it. All right, the Ten Commandments, as I said, are designed to form the people of God into a people that worship right. That's why those first ones are vertical, you and God. And then a people who live justly. That's why the last part is about how do we live together as a community. And in many ways, then the Ten Commandments still serve us. I mean, they are foundational. They're wonderful. They're designed to form us into a faithful and just community of people. That's a big part of it. All right, so let me talk a little bit about this paradox of freedom and commandments, freedom and rules. How does that work? Because if you're like me, then you, you start to think about it, and you because you've been formed in modern-day Babylon, or I could say modern-day Egypt, under the rule and authority of Pharaoh, <laughs> uh, you might say, I can't be free if I have to do what someone else is telling me to do. So what I want to do is get you thinking about freedom today. We could spend more time on this, but I'm not going to. I want to get you thinking about freedom today, and I'm going to read two passages from the New Testament to kind of help you understand why I want to redefine freedom for you. And then I'm going to just give you some things to think about, and then over the next three or four weeks as we continue to revisit the law, we'll press into this more because over time I want it to become clearer and clearer and clearer to you how the law and these rules and your obedience actually lead you to freedom. It might not make sense this morning, and that's okay, because you've been trained to put two spaces after every punctuation mark And it's going to take you a while to change that muscle memory in your thumb. So uh, the the first thing I want you to do, and you can write this down if you want or just try to remember next Sunday when you come in, but I want you to to spend a little bit of time, whether it's in a conversation with somebody or whether it's your own personal prayer time or a journal entry, but I want you to think about how do you define freedom? And I'd like you to ask yourself why. Where did that definition come from? Where did you learn that? Who taught you that? Who told you that's what freedom is? I want you to think about it. Your story might be different than the person sitting next to you, so think about it. And the next next thing I want you to wrestle with, because I, I think this will all matter eventually, is why do you want freedom? Now, freedom's a big concept, so that's why I want to take some time, but but I want you to, over the next few weeks, why do you want freedom? 
What is it about freedom that's alluring to you? Why do you think that will make your life better? Why, why do you want freedom? I want, well, just wrestle with that. Because I think um, there's probably a couple different ways that modern-day Babylon or modern-day Egypt has taught us to think about freedom. I think the easiest way to say it is freedom is I get to do what I want when I want. That's freedom. And some of you are like, amen, when can I, when can I start, right? Because we've been formed in that way. I mean, I think that. And I also think because, again, part of living in modern-day Babylon is being, being a consumer in, in a world of consumerism, that shapes the way we think about freedom as well. I might dive into this a little bit more later, but, but we begin to think about freedom as endless choices. I need endless choices to be free. Don't limit my choices. I need endless choices. And what I want to present to you this morning, and then we'll keep revisiting, is that biblically speaking, freedom is being free to choose what is good. You see the little shift. You might not even agree with it today. That's fine. Wrestle with it. But I submit to you, freedom is not you getting to do what you want when you want. Freedom is being free to choose what is good. Let me give you a couple verses to ponder as you wrestle with this over the next few weeks. John 8, 31 to 32. It's in a, in, a, in a bigger context, but Jesus says, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Verse 34, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. So now we're like getting into the biblical worldview a little bit. And if we're going to long for freedom, what is freedom? Well, in the biblical worldview, Jesus promised you freedom and I promise you it's good. But for Jesus, freedom is freedom from your slavery to sin and death. Which is a big reason why freedom is the freedom to choose what is good. Because you and I are in bondage to sin and death. And we are not free. You may be fooled into thinking you're free, but you're not free. And Jesus wants to come and set us free so that we can be who he's called us to be and we are free to choose what is good. And you gotta be free, right? It's gotta be a choice. You can't be forced to do it, right? Because at the core of all of this is a loving relationship. So it's, it's voluntary and it's that's why I use a family illustration. It's family-oriented. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son, or we could say a daughter, is part of the family forever. So if the son, Jesus, sets you free, you are truly free. You're a part of the family. You voluntarily choose. You're free to love one another. You're not trying to take and seize and grasp. We'll talk about it. You're, you're willing to give. Or this is what Paul says, and even reading through Paul, I mean, Paul talks a ton about the Ten Commandments, but I I was even just, I was struck because I think so much of Paul talking about the Ten Commandments is Paul talking about the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus does with the Ten Commandments in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And Paul then just kind of expounds on that. But in Galatians 5, 13, Paul says this, for you have, call, you have been called to live in freedom. Yes, I want to be free. And my brothers and sisters, again, very family-oriented language, but then what does Paul say? Don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature, which honestly I could translate like that's modern day Babylon's definition of freedom, right? That's consumerism. No, use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Whatever desire you're feeling, just satisfy it. I mean, that's where you and I have been formed. That's why, that's why I don't think we understand freedom. No, it's not what you do. Don't use your freedom to satisfy your sin, sin, sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Use your freedom to do what is good. Use your freedom to love your neighbor. 
For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So that's what I wanted to say about freedom. I want you to just sit with that, wrestle with that. You can disagree, we can talk about it, but, but, I, but I, think that's, I think that's the trajectory and I think that's how this works. As you, as, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. It's so Deuteronomy when he says that. And I think a lot of ways, if you, if, you, if you follow me, I will teach you to choose what is good and then you will be free and you will know life and you will flourish. So wrestle with that over the next couple weeks. All right, I want to talk finally about this, what Jesus does. And what I'm going to say may sound weird at first, but hang with me. I'm honestly not trying to be provocative or edgy, but I'm trying to, to make a point and maybe, maybe help you unlearn some things and relearn some new things. The goal of the law is not to get you to stop sinning. Your goal in life is not to stop sinning. That sounds weird. It's okay. Just hang with me for a second while I walk through this. But I want you to hear it that way because I think a lot of people think their goal is to stop sinning. And I think a lot of churches think their goal is to stop sinning. And I honestly don't find that an overly compelling motivation for many people. I don't think it's a sustainable motivation. And I also don't think it produces very beautiful communities. Right, if the law is trying, I mean, read through the Old Testament, the law is trying to create a community of people that the nations, what, what is the, what are the, pro- the nations come to Jerusalem to learn this way of life. But what happens in churches that aim at stop sinning? They become more known for what they're against than what they're for. And that's never really a beautiful community. Now, now does God want us to sin? No. Am I encouraging you to continue sin? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying your goal isn't to stop sinning. Your goal is to become like Jesus. And what I submit to you is that if you become like Jesus, that sin stuff will take care of itself. So let me give you an example. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul again is kind of walking through the, the Ten Commandments. In verse 24, put on your new nature. This is what he's talking about. It's not just stop sitting, it's be renewed. Put on your new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. That's what you were meant to be. You were made in the image of this God. You're not made in the image of Pharaoh, you're made in the image of God. So stop telling lies, don't lie. Let us tell our neighbor, neighbors the truth, for we all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. In, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, I don't, you've heard it said don't murder, I say don't be angry. Right, So, so don't, let, don't, don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. And I want to sit with verse 28, because this is where it gets the clearest. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. Do you see it there? The goal is not that you become the kind of person who doesn't steal. The goal is that you become the kind of person who lives generously. And again, that's not something that you can do on your own, but that's the kind of work that the Holy Spirit, that's the fruit of the Spirit. That's what he breathes into your soul. And, and so let me ask you, if you become the kind of person who your, your, your muscle memory is to give, you understand what I'm saying? Like you're, 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 you are a, you're a generous person because your God is generous and you're in a situation where no one will ever know and you could steal, would you steal? No, why would you steal? You're a giver, not a taker. So, 
You understand the goal isn't to stop sinning. The goal is to become like God. But if you become like God, you'll stop sinning. You understand? The goal isn't just to not murder anyone. Well, good job. You didn't murder anyone. I'm so proud of you. No, the goal is to learn the patience and gentleness of God. And you don't use your words to tear others down. You use your words to build others up, even in love. Even if it's hard, you use it. But, but that's what you do. And the goal isn't don't commit adultery, but don't commit adultery. Don't do it. But the goal is, Jesus says, don't lust after, after your neighbor. And, and I'll say this quickly. I think the positive side of this one, because I think this is profound. You, you've heard all the family imagery already, this is sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. It sounds weird to say this, but I'm, I'm, I, it's helpful. I have two sisters, and I think they're both beautiful women. And I have never once in my life lusted after either of them. And so I often think, you know, if you're struggling with something, ask God to help you see anyone who's not your spouse like they were your sister, or women like they were your brother, or, or some of you parents or grandparents like they were your son or your grandson or your daughter or your granddaughter. And I tell you what, if you can look at everyone like your sibling, you're not going to want an adultery with anybody. You understand, that's gross. But your, your awkward laughter there is the point. That's the point. That's the whole point. That's what the Spirit of God is doing. That's, that's what the law is pointing to, driving us to Jesus, to this even better life in the Spirit. And then it ends with don't covet, which... Uh, I'll, I'll just say that I thought about, I thought, I was like, I should give you guys homework and say, spend a whole day and everyone you meet covet something, like covet their nose or their hair or their car. And then I was like, I can't preach a sermon and tell you to break the 10th commandment, so don't do that. But do a mental exercise. How would you feel at the end of a day where you spent the whole day coveting what other people have? How would your soul feel? You tell me if that's flourishing. And then you can do this. Spend a whole day being grateful. Just all day. Every time you see someone, be grateful. Be grateful for something God's given them. Be grateful for something God's given them. Just be grateful and just see how you're, see if you don't feel filled up and satisfied at the end of the day. I mean, the Ten Commandments are good. They're good. And they're pointing us to even better in Christ. So let me close by reading Colossians 3. And then I'll pray. But I will make a plug. Again, this isn't stuff that you do on your own. If you notice, the Ten Commandments are kind of hard to do unless you're in community. So be in community here at Crossview. Join a small group, join a Sunday school, come to Formed, get to know people, grab lunch after a service. I mean, some of our, some of, if you're online and that's where you have to be right now, I mean, those are, there's availability there, but, but be in community. Be a part of these things. That's what Paul says in Colossians 3, just to drive it home. Again, I'm not saying keep sinning. Stop sinning, I'll say it. Because <laughs> Paul says, put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality or impurity or lust or evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. But don't stop there, because that's not the goal. Because the goal is right there in verse 10. Put on your new nature. And be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. I don't have a slide for this, but at the end of verse uh, 11, he says, Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must 
Clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. See what happens if you allow the Holy Spirit to unravel that in your life. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. And remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ, because Christ wants to give you peace, let it rule in your hearts. That's your authority, not modern day Pharaoh's. The peace that comes from Christ. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. And then, of course, don't covet, so always be thankful. <laughs> Amen? Let's pray. Uh, God, we covered a lot of ground today, but I think it's good news. Um, this is not like wasteful reading that we have to mire our way through. No, if we pay attention to these laws and understand what you're doing it's just this further reminder that you have a mission for us. You have a purpose for us. You are calling us to a certain kind of character. You want to give us your wisdom. You want to show us how to love. So would we be obedient law keepers in your kingdom? Amen.